Hello, everyone. Welcome to the seventh session of Nick Land's Bitcoin and Philosophy seminar. Nick, you can start anytime. Okay. Uh, great. I'm just going to access one text. Yeah. Um, so the um, topic laid out for this week was going to be uh, it's expressed as politics. Um, and there's certainly nothing in that in that huge, vast, sprawling field that is not relevant to what we're going to be talking about, I hope. Um, but I thought I'd narrow it a little bit right at the start um, and uh, focus on the word power. Uh, that's why, as, as Mo was saying, I, I put up this uh, um, link to the text which as I was saying to him I think every I thought everyone was looking at it. I keep seeing people talking about it a lot which is this one called Capital as Power by um, Shimshon Bishler and Jonathan uh, Nitsan who Mo says he's in contact with Nitsan which is a fantastically interesting thing. Now it's not that I'm particularly wanting to propose that this text is a totally satisfactory um, framework for, for this discussion um, but it seems to me it's interesting just because people are talking about it and because the way that they talk about power seems to be one that is probably um, or, uh, to use a to use a sort of reflexive word in this context kind of hegemonic in in um, this whole discussion at the moment I, I think that their definition of what it is to talk about something in terms of power as opposed to talking about it in more conventional economic or even political categories is probably one that would receive wide acceptance certainly in academic circles. Um, so I think we move around, there's a bunch of things that I think it would be disappointing if we don't touch upon. Ian has asked a particular question about surplus value of code, which is something that I think will definitely come in. And Laura has a point up about um, um, the mainstreaming of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, systems or peer-to-peer -peer software in terms of large established financial institutions. Both of those seem to me uh, things that should click onto this quite quite nicely. Um, Certainly, just to take four concepts, very blurry, each of them are blurry and confusing concepts that I think feed into this question of power a lot, is the notion of democracy, the notion of money, the notion of identity, and the notion of cryptography. And I, th I think a line that kind of runs through all of those, at least loosely, and then opens up um, the possibility of discussing how they connect. So really, the the task I'm setting myself as a kind of initial prompt for this for this week is to sort of think about what do we mean by power as a question that is being raised alongside Bitcoin. Um, and the quote that I think uh, does a lot of work in in this. Um, which I'll immediately throw at you is actually from Lenin 
1920 is extremely well known, which is his his uh, line from his essay on our foreign and domestic position and party tasks, as I say, in 1920, where he says, communism is Soviet power plus the electrification of the whole country. Now, I think often that is quoted by people who want to make fun of it, and it's not that it's not without its humorous side. But the thing that I particularly want to point out in it is that it actually when you are looking at it in English, has a strange doubling of the notion of power in that. He obviously only, in the English translation, I'm afraid my Russian is not up to a comparison with the original, but he only uses the word power once in, in this phrase, Soviet power. And that is a notion that, if expanded in various ways, is one that I think we have to think about in this in this context. It's really about um, power as a form of political organization and a political task and its relationship to the question of organization and then in turn to a set of articulations between power and economics. Um, but the shadow notion of power that is in there comes in with the word electricity. You know, as a colloquial English thing, when we talk about power supplies, the power industry, it, power is used as a very loose colloquial um, term that, that simply means quantitative electrical power. And so I think that in this phrase there are these two very different senses of power running up against each other implicitly, even if it's not something that is explicitly forced upon people. Um, and as we have seen, when we get to Bitcoin, I think both of these dimensions of the concept of power are still very much in play. Uh, if I was going to very loosely uh, translate them into Bitcoin terms, electrical power has become computing power. Um, that was actually the terms I was going to use for this terms, the, for this week's uh, session. And um, in using it, it was obviously slightly a deliberate play on these two different, on the ambivalence of the notion of power. Um, um, so, you know, computing power has a political economic sense, and it obviously has one that is very close to the sense that you find power used in electrification as something that's just a quantitative technical um, index of, of com computer capability. Um, I think we could translate it further into something even nicer, which would be hashing power. Um, um, hashing power, too, is something I've sort of in sort of trying to get my thoughts in order for this week is, is a little expression I've fallen in love with totally. It's partly just because it exacerbates even further the ambivalence in computing power. Um, it's also because the notion of hashing is one that I think is incredibly ripe to burst out of this Bitcoin context and become something that begins to do all kinds of weird semiotic work outside of that narrow technical terrain. And hashing power is exactly what is rewarded 
on the Bitcoin network. It is that that's incentivized. It is that, as we'll see, that is given a vote. And in doing so, immediately we have this crossover between these two different terms. That um, it's hard at, at this point to work out what is being, if anything, is being metaphorized. You know, are, is the political economic language being metaphorized in order to be applied to this technical terminology, or is the technical terminology, in a certain sense, acting as a kind of screen or a, or a cloak for a uh, familiar political economic sense of power? It becomes extremely um, intriguing to try and follow which of these li lines is really being pursued more directly or whether we really have some kind of unprecedented convergence taking place here which is forcing us into a radical rethink of both both sides of power on both of these different um, axes and obviously on the other side um, with the other side meaning in this sense the political economic side of power the sense of power that people probably feel is more um, immediately familiar, but I think that is partly illusory, is the question of algorithmic governance, which is the most direct way of talking about the um, implications of Bitcoin as it slots most directly into a familiar political economic problematic. Um, so this crossover to me is something that is definitely happening in Bitcoin and that um, maybe I'm now sort of resolving a question that I should leave open but at least tentatively I'll do that which is to say that this crossover is something real it's not it's not just effect of sloppy language or metaphorization from one side to the other there really is this crossover happening because both the problematic of algorithmic governments and the problematic of um, computing power as a voting uh, force, as something that is actually delegated social power within the system, are, are things that are irreducibly operative in the in the Bitcoin system. Neither of them is just some kind of figurative substitution for something that is solely happening um, on the other side. And I think a really interesting way to follow this through, um, and this is picking up on something that I just mentioned a little bit last time, um, is, um, if I can just repeat, uh, that I saw what was really a promo video for Bitcoin that was in some sense extremely naive, um, as someone approaching it from a kind of situation, a position of sophisticated skepticism would be, would have to constrain themselves from just deriding it. Um, but I think if you, if it's possible to to constrain one that way, it actually becomes quite interesting. And it really began by strongly foregrounding the notion of democracy, um, as as Bitcoin as a democratization. And obviously, the context of this is something we've been talking about a lot, which is the tendency it seems for the internet as a whole to have become massively centralized um, and that the early sort of cypherpunk 
ideals of the internet as a radically decentralized system seems to a lot of people to have been uh, progressively betrayed by a tendency towards these uh, what's often called stacks of people with kind of proprietary systems based on just a massive data accumulation uh, hubs that have taken a position of massive control over the, the functioning of the internet um, and in response to those trends towards concentration this democracy language has re-emerged in at least certain factions of the what maybe could be very very preliminarily called the Bitcoin community and so this piece was typical of this and again apologize for repetition but I, I just have to walk through this again this this video um, starts off by saying exactly the Bitcoin Bitcoin is a democratizing uh, tendency in the internet it's not like these other big players it's not it's de it's against the tendency of concentration and um, it gives everyone using Bitcoin a role in the running of Bitcoin there are no there are no as we know uh, from Satoshi Nakamoto's language there are no trusted third parties there are no transcendent hubs controlling the Bitcoin system and in that sense as an absolutely minimal definition a definition that really identifies this language of democracy with the ideal of a P2P distributed system it's democratic um, but it then went on to say and this is a step that I think is massively interesting that unfortunately I don't think it used that word but that's the implicit that's the implicit message of it. unfortunately it can't work just by giving every individual person a vote and and it can't do that because identity in this kind of distributed system a system that has to be systematically anonymized um, the whole functioning of it it's a kind of radicalization of the notion of a secret ballot as you get within traditional political uh, institutions um, the the anonymity of the system makes it impossible to validate individual identities and so there's nothing to stop a particular node within the system manufacturing personal identities I think huge um, this, this we've now introduced really the notion of identity into the whole into the whole question and what is being said is that in this system in order for it to be flat in order for it to be a peer-to-peer -peer system and in order for it to preserve this kind of secrecy that is treated as a kind of um, civil rights type of issue um, that set of realities has meant that the notion of identity as it could function of a as a guarantor of one's status as a an equal democratic individual has been obliterated there is no capacity any longer to preserve that identity and that identity has been subsumed actually into a potential 
manufacturing process. So you could run this through all kinds of discourses. I mean, I always tend to treat the sort of Marxist canon as a kind of um, a reference point here, just because it's so established in these things. But if you if you think of it in these terms, it's it's a hugely weird development that's taken place that the that the individual identity has actually been completely subsumed into the manufacturing process and therefore if we were going to be um, strictly Marxian about it it would be a complete absorption of the political in in the sense that preserves all its liberal ideals as well as as other ideals that would want to distance themselves from that uh, they've all simply been absorbed purely into a a um, dynamic of capital and so because because anyone with enough computing power can simply manufacture identities because identity individual identity is a product and therefore all your political voting power is actually now downstream of a production process that model of democracy which is surely the only commonly held model of democracy is completely uh, defunctionalized it's obsolesced by the by the just basic realities in which the system is operating so the video then goes on to say so in order to preserve democracy which is a, a term now getting very strained in order to preserve democracy instead it's necessary to move it into this different domain, which is the domain of um, hashing of computing power, that the, your, that the votes have to be delegated to computing power because because identity is not strong enough any longer to preserve that function. Um, it would simply be it would be lost immediately if 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 individual identity was meant to be the anchor of of a, of a democratic voice of a democratic vote and so the vote is moved to computing power and this is to me now where you know at this second step where in we're immersed in the topic that's where we are this is what bitcoin is is about it's about the fact that hashing power within the, the the domain of the Bitcoin system has completely absorbed everything that would previously have been conceived as political power. So the so we can still use this language, and they do use this language. So they said obviously democracy, voting all the time, voting language is is hugely present, as you will have seen in all of these essays and materials. But what this now means, what is doing the voting, what is the unit? of democracy um, is now being um, defined by by hashing power by computing power um, there's a sort of little digression which is which is I think uh, by no means irrelevant um, which comes up um, I think I definitely linked to this, which was this NYU talk by um, um, 
the guy's name was Brinton. It was extremely good, and and he talks about um, um, a guy called Adam Back, who you might have uh, be familiar with because he is one of the few people on on uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's very short little set of references at the end of the Bitcoin paper. Adam Back gets a mention of, as one of one of the eight. It's number six for this for this um, creation of his called Hashcash. And Hashcash, um, the motivation for that is very, very germane to the issues involved in this weird lineage, this strange process towards this kind of, um, this hashing power transformation of all of this language of liberal political theory. Um, because his basic starting point was a, is a phobia about spam. And that phobia about spam comes from the fact that um, on the internet, stuff tends to be free. I mean, this is the sort of dark side of the whole information wants to be free mantra that we get out of the very earliest days of the internet and its sort of political self identification um, and in this world obviously spamming emerges as a kind of spontaneous product because it's it's costless effectively costless to send half a million people a piece of it's totally useless and in fact extremely annoying digital junk so to try and heaps Adam back I think um, trusting Brunton on this a little bit um, really thought spam could destroy the internet you know that if it if if it, it was left unchecked this could really just wreck the whole thing and hash cash is a notion that comes is a response to the problem of spamming which is an attempt to reconsolidate some notion of identity that is secure against this tendency towards uh, infinite proliferation and the mechanism he uses is familiar to us because we've already seen it I mean um, Satoshi Nakamoto just takes up the basic hash cache system for his hash function um, it's basically that you have you demand proof of work to actually validate your identity so proof of work comes in at this point and proof of work is linking up is associative to a whole lot of things that we've now left on this trail uh, as kind of uh, hopefully question marks um, because because this proof of work thing it has kind of weird metaphorical associations to things that we're familiar with from the history of political economy but they're not again just purely metaphorical there's a real question of work accountancy in these in these political discourses in very different ways on the right and the left um, and proof of work w responds to that uh, implicitly obviously not as a direct thing uh, the the key point though from for this single moment is that um, Adam Back recognized after after innovating this hash cache system, a way of sort of 
validating identities to defend yourself against spam. If a spammer needed to prove work, if they actually showed that they had put some commitment into their message, then spamming becomes impossible, obviously. It's a, it's a natural defense against spam. The whole point of spam is it's costless. So proof of work is, is introducing a cost, and that cost is just simply incompatible with the very notion of spam. It's a kind of completely secure uh, exterminator of the, of the spam phenomenon. Um, I think um, he, he, Adam Back had expected that this would just catch on. Everyone would be using this system. It, because it was the natural way he thought to stop spam happening. Instead, people have found these other slightly messier ways of just dealing with spam, and it's one of many cryptographic innovations that have been much slower to establish themselves as general standards for internet activity than than a lot of these crypto people had expected. But Adam Back recognised that as soon as you have a hash cash system, why cause it hash cash? is it works as money because you have actually by proving a commitment by proving an identity you have established something of value um, that that a spam identity is worthless it has no monetary value it's 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 nothing because it's completely free you can spam a million people basically for the same cost you can spam half a million there's no scarcity to the spam message there's nothing that could give it give it value. But once you demand that an identity is validated, then it's worth something. And it can operate as a as a system of cash. Now, compared to the Bitcoin system, this is very underdeveloped in, in Adam Back's work. But Satoshi Nakamoto saw immediately that there was this connection between proof of work, identity, and the notion of money. And those three elements obviously are then synthesized within the concept of Bitcoin in a way that is far more coherent. Um, so money clearly comes into this. And now it's not controversial to say there's a relationship between money and power, but I think it's at the very least highly unresolved what that relationship between money and power is. And I won't get into a big digression about this. This is something we can talk about. But I would say, just off the top of the, my head, that there's two basic directions people can go in on this, which is that either money is seen as a formalization of power and therefore as downstream of power. And you know this is something that you obviously see in uh, when Foucault actually simply says, uh, what we call money, I mean, it's just implicit in what he's saying that actually this is just a way we have of talking about power in a particular, in a particular way. And the other side, uh, sorry, I should just say on that, this is where we, if we're going to bring um, um, Bishler and Nitsan in, this is exactly where, because they are, they are Foucauldian. And if I was going to be really a bit harsh, I'd say pop Foucauldian like this. They really make the... Um, Foucauldian point extremely um, clear and and straightforward with this. Um, we'll come back to them possibly. Um, so that's yeah, one way of doing it. And the other way, 
I'm just gonna like drop one sentence. Yeah, yeah. go, go. Mind, which no. is like, you know, I've had conversations about this with Nitsan, right? But yeah. their Foucauldianness, the intensity of their Foucauldianness is almost equal to the intensity of their disdain for Foucault. Right. So it's like it's like a paradox because they they refuse to understand how and why they're Foucauldian. And they go on to attack the Foucauldian notion of like power in a very like I mean, it, I mean, I can, I can give reference later in a book where they actually. Yeah, yeah, no. Let Let's definitely bring this. If it's not that I want to, um, it, we definitely let's get back to this, can we, Mo? And because I think it's like worth more than just a little aside. I think I'm I'm going to ha harass you to bring it back in just no, definitely. One minute. I just wanted to like, I just wanted to like put the footnote. We can get back to it. Or yes. Not as you wish. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think we, I think we should. I, I think this is totally fascinating. I, I'll just say one. In fact, we'll get back to it in just two minutes. I'll just say one more thing on, on this, on this, on this stream about power, and then I'll stop and let's get immediately to this, this point about those guys. But because just the, the fourth term that I wanted to bring into this was uh, cryptography, um, in the sense that. Um, there is a sense in which there is a cryptographic position which really maintains that it has the final uh, key to the meaning of power. That, that what power is, everything that we mean by power and all our ways of talking about power are actually a form of, uh, oh, I shouldn't say a form of, because I want to say a poorly formalized understanding of cryptographic problems and this comes in with this whole question of identity that that ultimately what an identity is in any robust sense any sense that can survive in the world that we're entering into and actually was always it was always like that but we can only see it now is that the the, the self an identity that is able to actually operate in this field of power is a holder of keys. That's that's what an identity is, and that it means anything. It's a holder of keys. As a self that does not have the key to its identity, that does not have its identity as a key, is simply raw material for these processes, um, completely unprotected, and that and that therefore cryptographic identity in this specific sense that that the position of an agent that has the the, the access to, to a, 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 a private code a private key if we're looking at it in the terms we were looking at last term of, of this public key encryption um, only that is an identity with any meaning you know every other or every other notion of what it is to be a self is is badly formalized, open to exploitation, sentimental, and and theoretically useless, and and incompetent, radically incompetent in the world that we're entering into. That that it's only as a holder of keys that there is any chance of anybody or any institution, any agent of any kind coping in the in the near future that we're 
using, and that beyond that, there is no meaning at all to power that is not ultimately cryptographic. If you, you there is a whole language that comes up on these kind of hacker bulletin boards and all of this towards to, about something being owned. You know, that, that again is a sort of interesting crossover of power language and economic language, you know, whatever it is. You know, NASA's mainframe is completely owned by some hacker collective, meaning they have the cryptographic keys to that thing. They can do with it as they like. They have effective, absolutely effective, concrete power over that, over that intelligence information system and that other than that type of power there is only blurry historical residues and various kinds of distracting historical legacy formations of power and ultimately the whole question of power resolves into a question of crypto competences. Um, so I'm gonna I'm going to just leave all of those just hanging open as, as question marks and immediately get back to Mo's, Mo's point about these guys. Because I want to hear, if I can just prime this a little bit, I want to hear how do they think that they are not Foucauldian. That is to me a fascinating, a fascinating question. Is Mo still with us, actually? Yes, I'm here. I'm just waiting yes. for... Well, so, so can to them, it's so not. That, yeah, it's okay. So, so to them, it's not that they recognize the shift that takes place from a Marxian understanding of political economy, which they also have a huge problem with, but the kind of political direction that Foucault takes this kind of like shift away from Marx, and to them. It's the wrong direction, even though he might be talking about the right keywords. So, whereas for them, power can only be, like, only be understood if, if, if built into the same algorithm of accumulation in which economic capital operates. But for Foucault, he sets it up as a kind of a dichotomy to how economic power operates. So that, to him, is a distraction. It's, it's a distraction away from where the conversation should have gone if we were going to move away from a Marxist understanding of political economy. So, for, right. so the difference here is that for Nitzan and Bichler, they provide you a system in which, through the notions of risk and hype, the kind of cultural or cultural or social or non-purely economic power is built back straight into the brick-and-mortar dollar and cent sense of political economy. So, so they think that, that Foucault underplays capital in his notion of power. Yes, that or, or does is. not provide a way in which how his notion of power is quantified and accumulate it, and how does that interact with economic power? Right. Am I am I am I clear? Or yeah, no, very clear. It's a fascinating thing. I mean, because if I, 
I've obviously uh, looked at this paper with great interest, but I don't recall Foucault even coming up in it at all. I mean, Is that right? PDF, I, can, I can just quickly pull it up and actually read the part that they berate Foucault. But I mean, they, they oh, right. okay. clearly state what I said. This is, this is out of like reading them, reading their attack on Foucault and then who, and the people they call postists. Postists being like all postmodernists, right? Right. And basically, I mean, I mean, the accusation is that they provide a weak, a weak cybernetic of power, power and capital. It's a weak form of cybernetic because it's, it's unable to sort of like built it into the same kind of like understanding of capital that includes like money, uh, credit, and accumulation of like power into capital. So for them, power, power is only power. Power only, power's extent is in its ability to accumulate into capital. So that's, right. that's, that's what they call, that's, right. that's why they're still material, materialists, right? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I guess, I guess then, Foucault okay, would say. Capitalism, he, capitalism is, I, I, actually, I pulled up something I wrote. Maybe, maybe if I read this paragraph, it will help. Do you mind? Sure. No, that would be great. Now, I'm presenting on Nitzan and Bichler, which is really weird. I didn't even intend to do this. But, so, this is sort of like my understanding. For them, capital, both in its financial and symbolic form, is always the network object of the invisible, indivisible, and immeasurable form of power whose actuality can only be realized, measured, and therefore accumulated through the hegemonic organization of all possible social relations that include, but are not limited to, those involving production and labor. Therefore, for Nitzan and Bichler, capitalism as the technology of the objectification, measurement, and accumulation of power, what you call formalization, Nick, is a social machine and not an economic one and is present in all aspects of life and not just in what is known as the economy. This broader understanding reveals that despite its historical claims of material objectivity, capitalism is nothing but the forcefully chaotic organization of the chaos of power through the enforcement of a multiplicity of pricing regimes within a univocal value system at all costs. So that's kind of like how I see. So it is not that in capitalism, numbers and their logical relations don't matter at all. But like, like how Foucault like basically has no notion of like arith arithmetics of power, right? But that the quantification of capital also encompasses other kinds of figures that until the arrival of the digital age were considered to have little to do with the practices involving quantitative measurement. So basically, with Nidzon and Bishra, you can see how all forms of like, you know, like, like how letters, like numbers, sounds, words, claims, texts can be built back straight into the same, same way we understand capitalism. Very wow. much along the lines that you're explaining. So, so they're, they're happy with the notion that you can, without significant remainder, quantify power economically, but that that quantification is differential in the sense that what matters, uh, to use that term, is differential accumulation, not absolute accumulation. Yeah, it's always, always I, this accumulation is always in relation to how much others are accumulating. 
Right. So basically, I mean, I'm taking I, I'm taking that as their what they're saying. When we move to an understanding of power rather than an understanding of economics, what where the the fundamental move there is exactly this question of differential accumulation, and that and that it's always actually about relative distribution rather than some absolute um, absolute consolidation of wealth or whatever. Um, although it's, it seems to me Marx is also arguably very close to that. Um, but for people to kind of like get a grasp of this differential, differentiality, is that say if, if Ford, if Ford shrinks 5% this year and Toyota shrinks uh, 2%, Actually, Toyota grows three percent, even though both shrunk. In, in that particular day. coupling, yeah. yeah. Because it, even in depression, even in an economic depression, some are still accumulating differentially. Right. Yes, that that's very much in in keeping with what I'm taking their key point to be on this. Yeah. Um, and uh, so so that's yeah when I. Obviously, way too hastily was talking about them as um, pop Foucauldians. That's exactly what I was meaning by that. That that it, it's the notion of this zero sum model of war as fundamental. So that if your enemy is, if you're becoming weaker, but your enemy is becoming weaker faster than you, you're winning in a military context. Um, whereas in a, a sort of uh, Certainly, in like neoclassical economic context, of course, everyone's losing. It's it's not being conceived as a zero-sum game. Everyone can win or everyone can lose. For them, that's not to think power at all. It's a it's a battle, and so if you can harm your enemy more than he can harm you, you're still winning, even if both sides are actually uh, suffering. Now, now, if you don't mind, I'm going to read their own text on 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 yeah. postmodernism. It's just one paragraph. And it's on page sure. 54 of the book, the chapter called Dilemma of Political Economy. And he actually begins his, his they begin their critique with talking about Frankfurt School. So they, they say, the early writings of the Frankfurt School spawned a radical literature that questioned the reified nature of the economy, if not its very existence, and that focused instead on the oppressive cultural powers of capitalism. Initially, these questions were addressed as part of a re-examination of the young Hegel, the young Marx, Lukács, and Gramsci. But since the 1970s, the inquiry drifted in an entirely different direction, situated somewhere between Foucault and Derrida. Uh, some, I have to like, yeah. This new fashion originally nourished in France and California is often based on the cynical plagiarism of Marx, Hegel and particularly Marcuse using in the guise of original radical thought. The adherent of this fashion pretend to offer an anti or postmodern examination of capitalism but unlike the early critical theory of the Frankfurt School the posture of this literature is largely anti-socialist and its methods derive often directly and consciously from the Intellectual depths of Nazism. So we're just going to leave it at that and let people read the rest of the 
chapter, page 54 and all that. Go ahead, Nick. I don't know if you can hear well, us. Well, yes, I, I can definitely hear you. I mean, this is all very interesting. I mean, maybe we can um, open up this whole question in all of its dimensions, and, and if uh, people are gravitating back to this um, um, Nishler, sorry, Bishler and Nitsan stuff, then of course that's, that's something we can spiral into further. I mean, it's, uh, it's obviously extremely uh, relevant to this whole question, for sure. Um, Mo, I just had a question. Oh yeah, there it is. He's talking. Okay. Yeah, just a question about your car manufacturer example, and so I guess more broadly the kind of power they're proposing. So is the idea essentially that, you know, if to have this sort of stock market shift and a relative increase in the power of, you know, call it Chrysler. Um, that so the in the first sense, the power that's been gained by Chrysler here is power over pricing. So the ability to affect the prices of cars, the prices in the market in a way that's advantageous to them. And relative the price to of the stock yeah. of and the price of the stock of uh, of itself and others in relation to all this. Right. Okay. Yeah. That certainly, and then also the prices of of what they produce of cars, you know, you know, in whatever way is more advantageous to them relative to somebody else. And then that secondarily, if we imagine these as all as you know, car dealers, or car manufacturers in Detroit, that there's this secondary, this social web of power that Foucault talks about, which is your ability to affect, you know, family life, uh, the city, you know, city life. Right. Um, and so forth. That's sort of the, the projected shadow of this relative capital accumulation, which grants a primary power over pricing regimes. Is that kind of the structure that they're building? Yes. But, okay. but they only concern themselves with, the, with, with numbers. And in their, in their model, really, the, the, the what's, what's, what's important is, is ability to set price and enforce prices. That's what that's what is the sort of like the central thing is pricing and the pricing to them is the mechanism of pricing that will then that will then trigger into accumulation of capital has always to do with like um, the ability to project and enforce a, a and like a like a stream of income in the future, right? So basically, okay. you're saying like my stream of income right now, which is already happened, and I can actually my the stream of income that that you already have, which is already materialized, right? Based on that, you kind of like project an expected expected stream of income, right? Wait, so this is the logic of accumulation. You're going yeah, logic of logic of accumulation. So basically, you're saying my ex my income my income in this quarter, which is already done and measured, and you can rely on it, was 100. Basically, depending on your resources for risking and then hyping this risk, you can say 
I'm going to I'm going to have this income raised to 130, right? And then the mechanism to get that get there is through is through taking risks by actually claiming that it's going to be 130 and saying like, how can you mobilize culture and politics, lobbying, hand wrestling, to to actually get there, right? Okay, so it's a kind of speculative power, the ability yeah, to command the resources and substantiate it's always, it's always speculative. Okay. It always happens. Yeah. Always happens. And, and yeah. No, sorry, Mo, Mo. Go. Yeah. No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it's it's this emphasis they have about its differential character. So it's always about the pie, you know, how dividing up the pie. They don't care, or they they. Uh, they insist that the players don't care about the size of the pie. The, the, the pie grows, if it grows at all, as a side effect of the attempt to get a bigger slice of the pie. And if, you, if, you, if the pie grows massively and you only get a little bit of the pie, you're losing that game. You know, you're, as, as economics, you're doing great. As, as power, you're doing terribly. Your power position is deteriorating. So, I mean, and from, uh, Mo can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me that this is like really axiomatic for them. Like they want to say this is the fundamental thing, that, that you have to assume that these agents are totally in this zero-sum mode in the sense that, you know, all they care about is proportional distributive relations of power and that and that, that is indexed in these economic forms, but that what money or what the what the quantities involve are differential quantities. Um, they're, they're quantities that just tell you how much better you are doing relative to someone else, and therefore your your power position is completely based upon this um, unequal distribution, which you want to exacerbate to the greatest possible extent. And so that's what you mean by they, they sort of perceive capital entities as being essentially military entities. Because in the same sense, the U.S. military or the U.S. Uh, government doesn't really care how much, how much Bitcoin is able to increase the efficiency or democratization of the society over which it presides, as long as it's decreasing the share of it which is accumulated in the federal government. Yeah, it's totally... Uh, again, I'm open to correction about this because, you know, my immersion in these guys is vastly less than the Mo's, and so I, I'm just, I'm just going on my sense of what they're saying. But that, in that sense, the military model, like when you get, you often hear this from military and strategic thinkers in a way that's very pure and very, I, I think, in an admirable sense from an intellectual point of view extremely cynical where they they say look we don't care about whether the world is getting richer or poorer or going to shit or global warming or any of this stuff you know the question we're always asking is how does these things affect us differentially that's what we mean by strategically you know if if the, the world's going to raise in temperature by 10 10 degrees and it's going to be hell for everybody, but it's going to be a little bit less hell for us than it's <laughs> going to be hell for our potential competitors, and that is great, you know. From a strategic point of view, what are we, we have no worries about that. Um, and, and so that, that mentality, 
that as you know just like uh, the chess example is obviously extremely crude but it's really helpful you you do not care about what is slaughtered on your side of the chessboard as long as you're just taking the out the more of the other guys pieces and and you know that's what i think is meant in this discourse by talking about power you know it's to get out of the naive notion that people are give, give, have the slightest concern for absolute quantities except as their contribution to these relative uh, distributions okay. it's kind of interesting I mean it seems as if the bold and this is a complete digression but the sort of the boldest work even bolder than the climate change panel at the UN or any of the science groups associated with it who have this kind of professional responsibility to be very um, epistemically conservative in their statements the US military on the other hand has produced really really bold rigorous speculative reports on what climate shift is going to do and all of its catastrophic consequences and so you kind of want to say to all of these to climate deniers and to everybody in general, you know, look at this, look at this information. But that information is also sort of, in some way, it seems would have to be biased, tainted, dictated by this logic that it doesn't really matter whether this happens or not, as long as we control how it plays out. And it'd be interesting to kind of see how, you know, what traces of that you could find in the material that they're releasing itself, you know, how to excise them, what kind of impact it's having on what they're releasing to us. Right, sure. Yeah. I mean, I can't help but think they must still be being constrained in the way they talk about these things because they, they can't be completely immune to the PR significance mm -hmm. of coming out with an, I mean, an absolutely raw zero-sum uh, analysis is extremely harsh. I mean, I think it goes beyond <laughs> what is publicly manageable you know but I but I'm open to contradiction on that yeah I'm trying to find this formula in 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 a in page around 180 in the book that's why I'm not really like saying much so maybe others if they want to like Contribute, or if Nick wants to move move on, but I would really like to uh, like copy paste this formula they provide. For basically, it's like a, the the formula of capitalization. It's some somewhere in like around 180. I'm looking for that, but you guys can continue on. Um, Nick, I was kind of interested by what you pointed out the the double semantics of owned. Um, as you know, you own property or you own your victim, and kind of considering. Uh, taking ownership as an attack uh, or as, as intrinsically a form of security breach or of attack and um, I don't know whether this is a formalism or an identification that kind of goes beneath the left-right divide in opinions or in language about Bitcoin and whether you know they both kind of depend on this underlying logic um, of seeing of seeing identity as something expropriated and expropriation as a form of attack, whether it's in a network or whether it's in a you know peasant revolution or something along those lines, um, and just like I don't know when you were talking about the self as a holder of keys being the only sort of secure and theoretically rigorous way of uh, of looking at self, I was thinking of Glasshouse. I don't know if you if you've read that yet, but 
you know, identity theft. Once your identity is insecure, you've gone through a reconstructor gate that is compromised. You know, someone can sandbox you, can fork infinite copies of you, and can do anything they want to. Right. Can be right. you. And so you get this sort of this idea of identity, which at the end of the day is, I mean, is literally you know, the person uh, referenced by this set of keys can be themselves reconstructed psychologically, you know, impersonated, recreated, if you have access. And so identity becomes the other face of the coin of security here. Yeah. Uh, that, does that make sense? It's something that is... Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, that is the vision, I think, isn't it? That, that's the vision. If you... If you are not a competent key holder, you are just totally screwed. And I mean, I think that from the kind of cypherpunk, whatever, you know, these these crypto circles, it's just whether or not they feel sad about that or sympathetic is beside the point. I mean, it's just <laughs> you are beyond any kind of hope. Any There's just simply nothing that can be done um, because... Because your uh, your identity is, yeah, to use this term, is just owned. You've lost it. It's gone, um, and that's over. Um, but like, I don't know. Did you? When I read, um, I'm reading blockchain thinking, Melanie Swan's book right now, and yeah. already just like a chapter and a half or a couple of chapters in, there have been various points at which she's sort of said like, oh, and the, the next step is we'll do this. And it involves like transferring private keys between people and like some sort of imaginary scheme for fractional reserve distributed Bitcoin lending that involves passing around private keys. And I'm like, you know, there, there's, there's if, the, if not right. no sense of security in this right. thing, line of thinking, at least less than yeah. what has been dominant before. Well, I can only think that 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 part of this is the fact that you can produce any number of public-private key pairs. So it's obviously possible to yourself propagate identities for the purpose of various kind of um, collaborative activities or transactions. You know what I mean? It's not that you necessarily are sacrificing the final the final key. Or oh, you're yeah. Not the key that is you, yeah. Yeah. Um. But well, I guess I mean more in the sense. Well, I guess once the once the recipient of a private key that you pass to them, which they should now be worried that you still know. Like once they have that key, they can issue a new key that you don't have for the same asset that you just passed them the key for. So I guess there. I mean, there is a, you know, there's a way to re-secure it. There's just a temporal gap. Or an intrinsic temporal gap. I don't know where I'm going with that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No. The, but the whole question is totally fascinating. I mean, it's this it's this form of extreme intimacy in the cryptographic eon, isn't it? I mean, if you pass someone your private key, it is an act of such utter Right. Utter communion yeah. that it's almost like, uh, from that point of view, unprecedented in in history that such a thing could happen before. Um, <laughs> but I'm obviously interested in what in in what people think. You know, what is power? You know, when you what what is the the 
the register that it should be discussed or what's the basic terms that people think are the most fundamental the most fundamental vocabulary for discussing it because as I say I think this I think it's always been actually very the reason that I introduced this Bichler and it's something is I think it's and I'm courting Mo's antagonism at this point probably by saying this but I think it's almost like a last gasp to pin the notion of power down to something sort of solid I mean it's relative as opposed to absolute but it still has a kind of extreme solidity to it absolutely um, no I, I actually agree The whole formula I was trying to uh, find, which I'm going to try to open it up and uh, like uh, at the screen, and maybe you guys can see it if I screen share. I finally found it. I think I found it. Uh, the screen share thing is where we go. Uh, here we go. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like they, they try to like, this is how they try to solidify it, right? Oh, God. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> the power formula. <laughs> this is the power formula. I, no, but it's actually, it's, 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 that's DK is differential capital, right? The D is differential. K is capital. So, so this is how the differentiality is, is measured. You against somebody else, and 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 E is earning, H is hype, and then that symbol is risk. So basically, earning times hype divided by risk right. is the formula. Wait, and risk is delta, or risk is risk is delta. Me over delta them. No, risk. No, risk is del your delta versus their delta. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, can Can I ask a sort of quick question? Sure. Maybe it's more of a comment, but uh, when, when Nick, when you say the whole question of power resolves into questions of cryptography or cryptographic uh, X, and you might have said something and I missed what X was, I am totally provoked. I think that's amazing. The reason I think that's amazing, which, of course, you've, you've already drawn this possible connection and probably have made a lot of is that again we're coming back to the double spending problem and one of the most powerful ideas that's come through in all of these seminars is is how you've been able to take the double spending problem all the way back to molecule, the, the replication of molecules and really find in it perhaps as you put it a kind of condition for the origin of money uh, if we can tie power to cryptography, then we can certainly tie power to the double spending problem, and and really, hopefully not too neatly, uh, <laughs> put these things together in a way which paints a really compelling picture. So I just wanted to comment that I definitely, I know we're going to, um, yeah, elaborate on the notion of power as as uh, yeah. Having to do with I, I think this is this is in your this is kind of uh, 
chugging away under your question about surplus value of code, actually, isn't it? Is that right? Mm -hmm. um, when you say, are we talking about insecurity when we're talking about surplus value of code? Yeah, um, I was thinking because this is a... Sorry, go on. No, no, no. I've finished. That's... that's uh, I just wanted yeah, the, to... Totally. I, I was, where that came from partially is I, I've been in a, a, a great seminar with a philosopher named Catherine Malibu. Um, you may be familiar with yes. her work on plasticity. And I've actually presented on your work. And she right now is really focused. She, was, she thought it was amazing. But she's really uh, focused on um, kind of trying to question why this language of surplus is in so much semiotic, semiological theory. And as I mentioned, a lot of authors um, a couple sessions ago, too, that seemed to talk about this. In Deleuze, it takes the form of this surplus value code. And it's a strange, and, I, and the more I think about it, it is kind of strange. I mean, in the example of the orchid and the wasp, when you think about the orchid hijacking the wasps, certain functions of the wasp, is it doing so uh, because there is a, a, a quote-unquote surplus value of code? Is that the way we want to talk about it? Or is it, and I'm not saying it's better to talk about it this way, but is it simply a matter of there's a kind of insecured aspect to the code which makes it possible for the orchid to hijack a particular function, right. in this case, the wasp's pattern recognition? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Part of it is obviously that when Deleuze and Guattari use this language, they're coming out of a particular lineage. And so it's meant to be part of a conversation with the Marxist tradition. Okay. And they consolidate that further by drawing this distinction, which they say between surplus value of flux and surplus value of code. Now, this distinction between flux and code is something that is big for them and plays a, a sort of theoretical role going right through this joint capitalism and schizophrenia project. But but in a nutshell, surplus value of flux is is Marx's notion of surplus value. And so you have a certain now we're in a zone that's really where we've been and I, I, I don't know whether we can get back to this. It's you know, the the electric power, labor power you know, there's a whole power language in, in in this, which is to do with a certain type of quantification. As we've seen before, it's very tied up, also uh, tantalizingly, with the with this hashing and proof of work system, in the sense that it's something that is uh, that is forced to be crudely quantitative. You know, M Marx's whole endeavor here which is in total continuity with the tradition of earlier uh, sort of liberal political economy, um, is to produce this quantitative key to the meaning of profit. Um, and so labor power is some kind of quantitative continuum um, that by the basis of these certain relatively straightforward arithmetical functions, you carve off a surplus that is profit from that you know that the 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 pool of labor if you take your whole labor force as a particular kind of collective 
body with a certain productive vitality, which is your, which is your labor power. Capital is a machine for extracting a certain proportion of that labor power, the proportion that isn't required for the reproduction of your labor pool. Um, and so that's the Marxist model, and that's the model of surplus value of flux. And so when Deleuze and Quattari say surplus value of code, they're engaging in a dialogue with that. And it's, it's a kind of subversive thing. I mean, my natural inclination is to see it as quite drastically subversive because they're saying there is a way that these, this economic mechanism extracts surplus that is completely irreducible to this whole attempt at quantification that we see reaching a certain kind of climax in the Marxist tradition. That when, when the, um, when the uh, orchid hacks the wasp, it's not extracting value from the wasp in the sense of surplus value of flux. It's not, it's not that there's a quantitative extraction. That what's required is only this extremely delicate, exact uh, coding operation that will, because of the way that the original system is coded, will release this energetic resources from the side of the wasp for functionality for the orchid. So I'm, I'm saying with this, it's just like, you know, part of that language is obviously part of this particular intellectual genealogy and part of this tradition. Um, and so uh, that's locking it to a certain point. And you could say, oh, well, maybe if they hadn't, if they weren't in that conversation, they would have used a completely mm -hmm. different vocabulary. I'm not sure what oh, I think the, about that. The, the, one of, one of the main critiques of Marx that Nitzan and Bishler highlight is the fact that this, this limited, the limited cybernetics of Marx basically kind of creates a like, fundamental place for the accumulation of labor into capital, right? And then sees the rest of the economy, which is sort of like money, stock, Futures, hedges, hedge, hedge, and hedge, hedging, and all that as sort of like a mirror image of the real economy, right? And Marx right. calls it like real capital versus fictitious capital, right? Right, right. And then, and then basically, this real capital is the basis of value creation, and then the financial war is like a mirror that tries to distort it and price it, and then kind of like own it. But then what happens is. In the, in the moments of crisis, the distortion of the mirror goes out of control, and then the mirror collapses. And then what you end up with is a 1930s style like, like, like devaluation. And then, and then value has to be restored back again from, from the real place of power, which is labor, and then for a new image of it to be formed. Whereas in Nitzan and Bichler, this image is actually part and parcel of the, is, is an imminent is an imminent political economy. So it's actually kind of Deleuzian in a sense, because to them, everything that happens symbolically in the pricing is actually kind of more important because it sabotages and gives meaning to what labor can be or can do. So if you actually want to like uh, take side of either like 
base or superstructure. Superstructure is more the base than the base is the base for Nissan right. Ambition. But actually, they, they try to come up with a formula that put base and superstructure together in the same algorithm. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting what the terms of conversion would be in this because the, in a way we're going, there's a bifurcation happening here between two different lines we can take in terms of code and its economic function. One of them that is the most, I think, the most direct Deleuzian road, even though they too, like we've seen with this speculative materialism site and the work they're doing, something that's m m very intimately tied up with the kind of things you've just been talking about, Mo. But I would have thought, if we're coming out of this whole question about surplus value of code, the most direct line that that's taking is to do with science and technology. That, that capitalism, that the kind of manip semiotic manipulation that capitalism does that is releasing surplus value of code is fundamentally technological in nature. And so by these, just like the orchid needs a, these very subtle semiotic innovations to capture this massive uh, energetic resources from, from the wasp. So these very subtle technological and scientific transitions can suddenly release vast productive capability that Deleuze and Quattro, I'm utterly convinced, and I think the whole reason they're using this language, are completely irreducible to some notion of simply increasing the command over labor power in a Marxian sense. You know, it's like the, 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 the productive forces released by capital is not just that it's increasing its dominion over labor power and therefore extracting ever more efficiently this surplus from this kind of uh, quantitative uh, labor power, but instead they're releasing these, these forces of nature. Um, you know, the most extreme ones would obviously be because they're most they're most simple it's like biotechnology you know you have a biotechnological breakthrough that allows you to get bacteria to start producing vaccines for you or some valuable thing and so you know a, a capitalist entity that was able to do that by just these these semiotic processes essentially, you know, written in DNA at a certain point, is actually releasing these productive forces from nature that were simply not tapped before, and tapping them is the surplus value of code. So I'm just saying there's that lineage that's very oriented towards these technical and scientific aspects of capitalism as process. And then what Mo's talking about now, what um, uh, Bishler and Nitzan are talking about, um, what all of this uh, material in the collapse volume is is largely concerned with is then the, these codes in the financial sector and in terms of these high level especially derivative type financial operations um, they too obviously it seems you know by extremely delicate semiotic innovations are able to release fast capabilities in terms of at least differential um, economic power and economic resources. Um, now the, the, the articulation between those two different things are not 
is not to me at least at all clear. I mean, I don't see. I again, I'm going to be straw manning um, Bishler and it's on here, so I'm I'm relying on Mo to to to, to jump on me hard. But it seems to me that they are almost as naive as Marx is about science and technology. And what I mean by that specifically is that Marx is never more naively liberal than when he's thinking about science and technology. His notion of it is that um, any notion of intellectual property or limited restricted access to technological advantage is actually comparable to fraud. You know, he says, look, you just as you're not, you shouldn't, when you're talking about why does capitalism make a profit, you shouldn't be thinking about people putting chalk into bread or various kinds of cheap, fraudulent practices. You know, there's a machine here that is systematic and works without having to cut corners, without having to engage in these, these kind of tricks. He thinks that if you... Um, if, if a business is making more money than another business because it has access to a superior kind of scientific or technological knowledge, it's just the same in principle as, as this kind of fraudulence. That science and technology is intrinsically public, that the, the, the whole economic sphere should have equal access to it, that the notion of intellectual property plays no role in his analysis at all. Um, that it, you know, that it should diffuse frictionlessly. If you innovate some new type of machinery, it should diffuse seamlessly across the economy, and everyone can do the same thing. And you don't, you don't make profit in any significant way by having better machines than the next guy does. So, you know, th this is a way of basically discounting that whole question from his analysis of capital and just saying you're just missing the point of what capital is about if you think that it's of course it has an extremely dynamic tendency to technological and scientific innovation because it wants to substitute machines for labor um, and and this is something that is like absolutely intrinsic but it doesn't expect to make differential advantage to have a to, to gain differential advantage from technical and scientific improvement um, except in the extremely short term now it seems to me that at least on the surface um, Bishler and it's an are, are kind of similar like that like if we look at um, uh, Mo's formula where is technicity in that formula is it anywhere I mean I can't see it it seems that formula seems like in exactly this sense purely Marxian you know one that that sees kind of um, technocultural differentials as being irrelevant to the political economic analysis unworthy of specific uh, notice I mean do you think I'm wrong about that Mo? I don't think you are in a sense that they don't necessarily talk about it but it's easy to collapse that into the formula and also their emphasis that capitalism is a changing algorithm. It ch capitalism itself is like a very important technological innovation. The, 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 
the idea <laughs> to seize the future, to sabotage production, to, you know, I would just like going by what you said, like, like to, to, you know, you said to seize it or something, but they actually literally think that capitalism's more interested in sabotaging labor and production than to, than to uh, exploit it. Like or or the exploitation, the ex, the exploitation, and this is like their their humanist humanism comes through this, right? They like all collectivities are usually productive, and in productivity would usually be benefiting the, the 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 collective. So capital always has to capital power always has to sabotage this collectivity to ensure that it does not become something that would be mutually beneficial to the members of the collective. Which is sort of like a factory, or any other kind of any kind of social group. So, so by throwing it into crisis and by using whatever it can, it sabotages the actual production of value, and then imposes its own pricing mechanism on top of it in order to kind of like uh, control it. Yeah, I mean, this gets us into a really interesting question. Um, maybe I'm following you down this this line and I apologize if it's it's getting a little indirect in relation to Bitcoin but but take this car factory example that you gave me and they also use oil companies and all of these kind of examples you know it's a bit arbitrary which one we choose which industry there's a question here about um, who are the players of the game you know it, it's fine to say we've got a zero-sum game if it's a game of chess totally clear there's two players one of us is going to win or there'll be a draw but but basically my losses are irrelevant as long as your losses are greater because it's a sim it is an absolutely two simple two player zero sum game and if we had a world in which there were nothing but two car factories two car companies and so my car company we're all in depression, but my car company is surviving that depression better than your car company. Fine, you know that analysis works fine. It's like a chess game. We can make sense of it as differential power like that. But can we circumscribe the game that clearly? You know, there's the two car companies. Then there's those car companies and the rest of the economy, the rest of the domestic economy, the rest of the international economy. Maybe you could say class relations. Um, there's the human species against the rest of the biosphere. I mean, that you know, where where do what entitles us to draw this line at the edge of the game? Because it's only when we can draw that line that we can say it's okay if we're all going down the hill. Because I know who my opponents are, and I know who I'm measuring myself against, and I know what this differential is about. But as soon as you've got this open-ended, ambivalent field of competition, where both of us could be going down, and some third party could be benefiting from our mutual misfortune, then you lose the sense of that analysis. And and it seems to me, even if we're going to restrict ourselves and say, okay. Um, to talk about to talk about a competition between the human species and other species on this planet or something is a step too far but it surely must be the case that if you simply said car company A against car company B is like a chess game 
you're missing the fact that a car company is not only playing game against another car company, they're playing game against the whole of the economy, not only locally, but globally. And the whole collapse of the car industry is a, is a foreseeable outcome that would benefit other parties. You know, the field of competition is, is not easily delimitable. Right, I mean, and with that, we see really the opposite effect, where the what even if they even if they conceive of it themselves as a zero sum game, the competition in this zero sum game between them gives rise to technology which has a positive sum value that either ends up destroying them, or at the very least, I mean, what we're seeing is this zero this military competition over time, constantly building up the capabilities of, of each in a way that's not reducible yeah. to the initial game that they were playing at any point. Um, but I think that's also so. It's not necessarily, it's not necessarily possible or desirable to excise the zero sum game from our analysis because it's it's following that winner takes all logic, which arguably drives the military to produce all of these technologies that it's produced. You know, yeah. like it doesn't like if the whole world goes up in flames, at least we have the internet to connect. You know, NORAD and the underground university facility for developing the next NORAD. You know, yeah. I mean, I I take it for sure that there is a crucial role for this level of analysis, and that a lot of negative sum games are being played. Um, my concern is just if that is treated as the as the sole basis of strategic decision making, then um, it's easy to oversimplify the strategic environment. I mean the military example is a is a is a is a classic one obviously in the sense that you can have this perfectly rational zero sum logic as long as the world is neatly divided between two antagonists without remainder. But as soon as you have some third party who potentially would benefit from the mutual damage inflicted on those two parties on each other, then you're in this more complicated strategic environment and that three-party model is obviously in human strategic history vast you know the whole I mean been in China th this is the huge thing for them the three kingdoms is their model of what strategic thinking is about where you know you don't have two parties you have three parties and your strategic decision is always if A fights B then C will benefit and you know, can you get B and C to fight each other, or the the this this triangular logic, which of course is it is still s simplification, but it means that you know, framing a zero sum competition is a complex strategic issue in itself. It's not something that can be taken as as assumed. It's yeah, it's non-trivial. It involves requires a certain surplus and generates one. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm just sort of responding a little bit to this panel. I hope it didn't sound as if I was saying um, that, quote, Deleuze is just taking the piss out of Marx. <laughs> it, it's, a, 
it's a it's a nice formulation. <laughs> I'm sorry to put it that way. It's, it's one it's one that I would distance myself from just just a little, perhaps. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You you said subverting, as opposed. Yeah. To <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Um. Yeah, no, it's just, I mean, I'm having a really interesting, um, oh, shoot, I have to plug in my computer here, a really interesting conversation with Jake just and Amy on the sidelines here um, about the evolution from Simon Don's language to, right. um, to Deleuze's language. And, you know, I just want to, before just accepting the framework, I mean, we're, we're trying to, in a way, develop a new framework here. So the question is, what language do we do? We, bring with us on the way right. to yeah. developing this new framework? Do we want to bring the notion of, of a primary code and then, and then the surplus? Uh, or I'm sure that word primary isn't used, I'm using it. And what kinds of questions could we, how could we interrogate it, how could we be critical of that language, in what ways should we before just taking it along for the ride? Because apparently, sure. as, as Jake was suggesting, Simondon uh, is talking about this in terms of technical, um, in terms of technicality and not talking about a surplus of code. So does he, does he get the same thing in different language or has Deleuze added something essential that we need? And and. Perhaps he has through because he's engaging Marx. I mean, there's a broader sense of production at play in Deleuze's version because for Simondon, like when, like what I was talking about was only the schema of concretization of technical objects. He's not talking about biological individuation. He's not talking about a lot of things that um, Deleuze's notion, I mean, arguably, mm -hmm. is generalizing that onto. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yes, no, it's interesting, obviously. I mean, there's obviously would have been a case for just being extremely austere and restricting ourselves to the language of the Bitcoin paper. And that would have been an interesting uh, project for this. So, I mean, I think there's lots of different uh, strategic lines one could take on this. And, and, you know, that for sure would have been one. And others involved is involved in a kind of certain type of a negotiation between the vocabulary that comes out of different um, intellectual traditions and mm -hmm. you know there's an arbitrariness to that inevitably um, I, I certainly are aware that I have a sort of arbitrary investment in certain packets of vocabulary because of the fact that they come out of lines of intellectual inquiry that I'm just happened to be more familiar with them than others. Um, whether there's a there's actually some kind of um, case for an authoritative vocabulary that would not fall under either of those categories. You know, neither the vocabulary that you're you know is just imminent to the to the actual blockchain phenomenon that you're looking at exactly. Nor is it something that's being adopted in order to relate a a particular set of uh, discussions together, but is somehow something that that can make a case for itself outside of either of those two um, choices. 
I'm open to that as a possibility, but I'm not really yeah. seeing how it would, what that case would be like. Right. Because, well, here's one way of, of phrasing a, a, way, a qu critical question about the notion of a surplus value of code. It seems to me that the very notion of a surplus means that if you were to remove that aspect, th that surplus, that it could still function the same. Because it's a sur it's a surplus. It's not essential to to the successful uh, the the, yeah. uh, the instructions that successfully being carried out. So, well, but that's not well, the case. We're talking well, about it. Well, I think I think let 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 me see whether if we just go through through because the example that D and G always use. So let's stick with this one. Is the wasp and the orchid example? Now mm -hmm. I'm understanding it that the surplus value in that case is the potential of the wasp to be a sexual organ for the orchid. Now, and it's surplus because of course the wasp could completely function as a wasp without that function. So if the orchid was not extracting that surplus value of code from the wasp, the wasp would carry on being a wasp, but what it wouldn't be would be a uh, a, a part of the reproductive system of the orchid. So that that functionality, that completely supplementary functionality of it being part of a vegetable sexual system, is the surplus value. And and, yeah, and I think if you if you set it up that way, it seems to me it squares with what you're saying. Or, or yeah, it know, makes perfect like, sense. And I could yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah, well, it, just to say, of course, you know, um, it's not necessary. I mean, the wasp, could, there's, there's an alternative history where the wasp doesn't enter into that relationship with the, with the vegetable world at all, and that surplus is not extracted. And all of that wasp coding is, is as it was, one can only assume sort of, you know, selected for to do wasp stuff, you know, and wasp sex stuff in particular with other wasps and not with flowers. Um, so, you know, that would be that would be a surplus that had just not been extracted. And I think it's just but by, by using the word surplus, one is just saying it's being translated into this completely new, in their terminology, machinic uh, assemblage that that is arbitrary in the sense that it's completely heterogeneous, the original purpose of all the machinery that is being involved in it. Yeah, I think that's the key for me is think, for example, what you just did was use the word translate, in, uh, kind of translating in, instead of uh, accessing a surplus. It's just a different, you used a, diff a different way of talking yeah. about that because it makes perfect sense when we talk about the orchid and the wasp. We can apply this language and, I, and concretize it and it absolutely makes sense, but the question is still, we could use, can we use other language and concretize it, so therefore why use surplus? Because in the circles that I'm in right now, the word surplus just scares people. So this is, yeah, I think that's completely legitimate. It's a, it's a, to me, I'm reading it as a kind of tactical issue really, mm -hmm. um, but, but it seems to me a completely legitimate tactical issue, and, and I think mm. the reason that that vocabulary is being used. I, it's unimaginable to me. I mean, someone can argue 
uh, about it, and and it's not that I don't think it works extremely well for what it does, but it's unimaginable to me that that is the vocabulary that would be would be being used by Deleuze and Qatari if they weren't in this intimate engagement with the Marxian tradition, um, and that you know that's why specifically that vocabulary is there and is being used to do the things they're wanting to do with it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Awesome. Um, so, and this is just sort of curving it back to the issue of hashing power um, and of, sort of identity as a form of security, uh, as a restriction of surplus value. So then the fact that w with one-way hashes, um, you get uh, allow you this allow you for, allow for digital signatures in the sense that you can't change the message that produced the hash without changing or corrupting the hash somehow, um, and so that you get you know a, a unique hash value out of everything. Is that does that imply that the power not the well? Okay, yes. Yeah, so I guess what I'm saying is that. It seems as if cryptographic hashes or one-way hashes are a restriction of surplus value, or something that is deliberately designed in the way that Ian was kind of suggesting, right. where there is no, where no surplus value of code is possible. You can't have multiple right. messages, messages that correspond to this hash, and so the ability, the use of computational power to create one-way hashes and to calculate them, is, it's sort of a conversion of this computational power into something that's restricted against surplus value and then right. gives that power to identity. Does that yeah. make sense? No, I think that does make sense. I think, I think so. I think that's basically the way it articulates, for sure. Um, and, and I think if you sort of run it through all these other examples, and obviously one that gets you closer to the computer model to do with virus and various things, you know, that is the, the way you've set it up there is, is the fundamental picture that we get because because if if the if something was engaged in a kind of activity that could be extracted that a surplus could be extracted to do hashing in this way then um, then the 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 machine that was doing that extraction would uh, I'm wandering between vocabularies, but I think this is inevitable. One, in absolutely, in this kind of cypherpunk way, would just own Bitcoin. You know, it would, mm -hmm. it, it would have simply captured something that just gave it a backdoor to total power within the back within the Bitcoin system. Um, you know, like say, uh, say, uh, th there was some weird stuff that bacteria were doing. And through some kind of um, weird biotech computer system, you could find that just with a few tweaks, you could get this tank of bacteria to be uh, to be hashing hashing <laughs> out new bitcoins for you. Then you would have just like um, um, th that company would own Bitcoin immediately. So the whole thing that it's it's the the function as a kind of proof of work would be gone. What what work have you done? You know, you haven't you've 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 exploited you've exploited bacteria in, in a precisely sort of Deleuze Equatorian way to actually 
as a side effect of their activity take over the Bitcoin machinery <laughs> for you. Yeah. <clears throat> huh. Okay. Yeah, I can hear you for sure, Thomas. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just auditing this class. Uh, I don't, I, and I haven't understand a, si a single word. I have no, no idea. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I came in, uh, and uh, it just, uh, it's a whole other language. I have no idea even, I mean, I've heard of bitcoins, but I, uh, their relevance to sort of Marxism to me seem. Uh, I'm. Uh, I hope I'm not interrupting the discussion too much. Oh, not at all. No, no. You're you're reanimating the discussion. Uh, what would I mean? Uh, is just the fact that it's a a cryptocurrency something that can be used uh, by people anonymously without engaging in uh, the third party. It's third party, yeah. That that's the major sort of element is that uh, it doesn't, um, it's not traceable like normal capital. Not only that, but that that's definitely part of it, and we've been discussing that a lot. But I think another aspect of it which makes it interesting is like a form of the restriction restriction of an inflated monetary system that keeps doubling and tripling, and sort of like the reduction of but maybe reduction is not the right word, but like the transference of value creation to intellectual labor performed by non-human agents like CPUs and graphic cards. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, or and others, and just like shoot me right yeah. here. No, I think that's good, and I think this notion of intellectual labor is even worth underlining, because as we've talked about before, and it ties up a lot here it's there's a deliberate attempt to make this hashing activity incapable or intractable to any kind of um, any kind of shortcut through clever coding or any advances in artificial intelligence or it's 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 work when when it's called proof of work by Adam back then by Satoshi Nakamoto, the whole thing is set up very, very specifically and rigorously to be the work of computers. And, and I think it's the work of computers. It's not something that's ever been specified in this way before. I mean, computers have done lots of mindless grinding activity before, but it's only with this notion of proof of work that that actual labor of the computer um, as as something that has no shortcuts, that is this brute force trial and error 
test of sheer computing power has actually been formalized. And it's something that connects it to time, you know, much like the labor, you know, labor time yeah. and labor theory of value and Marx. I mean, obviously, like clock time, as we see it, varies depending on the strength of the power of the processor. But Absolutely. you get a raw sense of processor cycles as being both work and time. Yeah, the notion of I think this is a really good point. The, the notion of work time is exactly the same in Marx to do with labor power and in this field to do with computer power. It's well, this exactly is, the same notion is, of time. This is like funny, we're getting to it finally in the seventh session, but I've been telling everyone from the first class or the first seminar session that the significance of what, what Nick's doing with this seminar is that he's he's like in a way and I'm and I'm like I'm being like reductionist here. That like it's sort of like it's sort of like put an almost end to these types of like capital as power that sort of like is is characterized by what Nitzan and Bichler finally understood capitalism, modern capitalism and modern monetary system kind of like result and kind of like back to some kind of like Marxian labor theory value but machinic labor theory value but mach like machinic intelligent labor because machines always were part of the labor you know what I mean from the day one so saying machinic machinic uh, machinic labor theory of value or MLTV is not good because it's it's a particular type of machinic it's it's sort of like cognitive machinic labor not like physical machinic labor right yeah so in a way, it's very it, itself. It's very like Marxist. It has like a lot of extremely interesting resonances, for sure. Yes. I think so. Resonances with, I mean, with the labor theory of value, but in a in a new and like crazy way. I, I put up a a kind of slightly um, uh, a little tweet actually uh, uh, on this, just because it's something that has been nagging at me about this notion of from each according to its computing power to each according to its proof of work and the, the, the fact that that actual sort of system of rewards in the in the Bitcoin system is so consonant with that classic Marxist formulation um, is to me a, a really interesting phenomenon that's happening here and it's almost like just as on the one hand as we've talked about a lot Bitcoin is obviously a simulation of gold in fine detail to an extraordinary extent but it's also in a weird sense a kind of simulation a computer simulation of a kind of quasi-Marxian notion of labor that is being instantiated in in computer system, it's almost like a weird kind of sim Marxist political economy that is that is being put together by it. From the I have a question. Uh, this so is definitely collapse nine or ten. It's like collapse eight is like it's like we're moving into like another like territory. As shoot. 
Oh, there's, from the perspective of the blockchain, Bitcoin, or like literally just the issuing of coins themselves is just a means of incentivizing people to keep up the proof of work and the issuing of blocks, which allows the blockchain to be secure and to have, you know, um, immodifiable history and inexorable future. Right. Um, so from, I mean, the sort of Marxist project interpretation of it kind of makes sense if you view it as just a means of incentivizing people to keep up the public infrastructure and to do so in a way that's maximally distributed. And instead of worrying, you know, the primary worry in that, um, in that equitable distribution being equity for equitability for its own sake, it's that the more equitably it's distributed, the more secure the system is against control by any one party. So there is, I mean, sure. as far as the infrastructure is concerned, is concerned, there is kind of a Marxist logic to it, but it's in order to enable, I don't know, there's almost kind of like a mixed mixed model, you know, state and cap, state and market, or public infrastructure and private market kind yeah. of idea going on. Yeah, I mean, it would be easy to really go off the rails with this. I, I, I definitely think that that's right. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a strange series of resonances that's, to me, very thought-provoking, but for sure it's temptation to go in lots of odd and what would be almost psychotic directions about this. I mean, to say, you know, it is a kind of Marxism for computers, yes, you know, but uh, I definitely agree lots of hedging needs to be uh, put around that, uh, absolutely. Yeah. These words are also like funny and wonderful and original, you know, Marxism for computers. It's like awesome. Should we put Amy on spot and make make like ask her to like Amy, it's time for you to say something or or you're just still absorbing? <laughs> Frankly, I'm completely <laughs> fucked today. I'm just I'm just going to sit here in the background and listen to you guys talk. And those stacks of books are okay. bigger and bigger in the background. Or maybe I'm just seeing them for the first time. That is a huge stack. Yeah, the stacks of books behind Amy. Oh, um, yeah, that's stuff I'm supposed to be reading. <laughs> <laughs> They've all got bookmarks in them. It's really impressive, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm working my way through them. Can, can I just say about this, actually, it's really interesting to me that the thing that I just was, I never doubted, I was just assuming we would, of course, be talking about, we haven't talked about at all, um, which is just, uh, I mean, I'm sort of, I'm impressed that we haven't talked about it, it's not, I'm not at all being critical, which is obviously that from the most straightforward framework of political observation about Bitcoin, this uh, allocation of all political power in the system to computing power is vastly problematic, you know, by almost any normal political reference frame. And, you know, if you were going to be, uh, I think, Marxist in a way that is kind of cruder than I think we've been, but, you know, that's not necessarily to criticize it in itself, it's obviously you are just simply allocating directly all these 
liberal democratic political principles and rights to capital. You're just dumping them straight into capital. You're you're the 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 um you know the voting power, the political power, the decision making power in the blockchain system is based upon computing power. Computing power is a straightforward function of capital investment in computing equipment. Um, so you know in terms of the kind of uh, in terms of the the, the preset model of, of of criticism that would come out of a standard kind of left wing set of observations on this, the picture is so unspeakably ugly that it like is a uh, mind blowing, you know. And so I was utterly expecting that when we talk about blockchain and power and money and all of that stuff, that this was going to be the dark star, that, you know, that everything was orbiting around. So I think it's quite interesting that that set of concerns hasn't been something sparking people at all. When you, when you say that, Nick, um, the allocation of all political power um, to computing power, when you say that, how far are you going to go with that? Because, of course, we are still the ones circulating Bitcoin. The computing power is simply the securizing. Sorry. Right. Of, but for how long? But for how long? How long what? But for how long? It's for humans. Well, I I mean until until we're eradicated, no matter what else besides humans, there's there's certainly going to be a political what I'm suggesting or wondering is isn't there always a political power of course beyond the computing power there's well except that the frame you know if we're getting back into the, the kind of critique language uh, in the Kantian sense the frame the transcendental structure is what the computing power is deciding so as you say, we're there's all kind of human agents and whatever other kind of agents have crept into the system we can't know because it's all everyone's wearing a mask. We can only assume that the people involved are, are still at this stage mostly human beings. Um, but the game that they're playing, whatever transactions and commercial interactions they're they're playing in the Bitcoin system, the rules of the game are being set by the uh Nakamoto consensus and the Nakamoto consensus which is the final tribunal for the structure of reality as far as the Bitcoin system is concerned is decided by this vote of computing power and as I say I don't I don't see how computing power can't be taken as a direct uh, as a direct expression of capital you know, you just, if you want to put computing power into the Bitcoin system, you have to just buy better, more advanced, more powerful computers. There's no other way that you can do it. And there's a whole obviously interesting commercial and technological system now evolving on the edge of the system to do with the mining industry like that. Um, but, but, but it's a proxy for capital in, of such a direct kind, I wouldn't really have thought that that would be controversial. Um, so we are playing inside a game that the computing power is perpetually deciding to reauthorize 
as a game and there's no other or transcendent authority that can change that game without mobilizing more computing power on its on its behalf but so and that but that which so capital is that which organizes the distribution of the ability to buy computing power and to deploy it you know for the purposes of this game then capital itself like pre bitcoin capital is sort of an externality to the economics of the bitcoin game i mean that's like one way of accounting for the fact that we haven't brought it up is that we've stayed so much within the mindset and sort of the internal terms and logic of Bitcoin for which this whole question of, you know, who has computing power, by what means do they bought, have they bought it in the past, right. it's sort of like, you know, like primitive accumulation uh, of land. And right. have this question yeah. of, okay, yeah, sure, you're trading around property that is somebody's property, but, like, where did you get this property to begin with? Oh, you know, right. we wiped right. out the indigenes. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a great thing, to, this question of primitive accumulation. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. So the investment of computing power into the Bitcoin system is the primitive accumulation of the Bitcoin system. And it works exactly all the debates and all the arguments I'm overusing this word, but I, I think it, again it works. They translate across perfectly, you know, in the sense that within the Bitcoin system is the perfect hyperliberal commercium, in the sense that primitive accumulation is unquestionable once you're inside that system. It makes no sense at all. And so, yeah, within the system, you're just asking how many bitcoins would it take to upgrade my ASIC processors to, to improve my bitcoin. Um, mining capacity. Mining right. But so I'm more interested in the question, so Amy brought up DAOs. Um, if we just sort of, I mean, and this is for me maybe, and I think for the Bitcoin community for the most part, that it's, it's intriguing, this question of, you know, what are the ramifications of certain people getting a bunch of Bitcoins because they had processing power, but it's just, it's more interesting what is at any given moment the spot distribution of ability to affect is like yeah in the Bitcoin context we're more worried about attack and about integrity than we are about distribution so with ethereum one of the things that people are saying is a problem is that in order to compute this giant ass global state all the time you're gonna have to give up some of the p2p aspects and you know absent some other code le protocol level solution you're going to have to have dedicated workhorse nodes that have special hardware to be able to compute this, and you're not going to have a widely distributed, um, you know, full mining subset of, of the commercial network. Um, and so the two aspects. So it seems as if this issue, of, you know, the um, you know Marxism for computers, computational labor power, so uh, so forth, is all kind of floating in a vacuum and is just translation until you reach the point where you have a question like, well, you've got autonomous entities, corporations, or you know, way, ways of ways for agents to be autonomous that are dependent upon something which, for technical reasons, you know, may or may not have to right. be P2P versus concentrated and dedicated nodes, and that's where you get a real political question of how this computational power is distributed. And not really until that point, but it is also, you know, it's flip side or the flip side of the distribution of computational power is the level of P2Pness, if that, if we can use that um, neologism of the network. And that's sort of, that's where, that's Bitcoin's version of the question of distribution of resources is really the question of whether the network is actually P2P or the protocol is actually P2P.
Do you have any comment on that? Because I'm, I'm pretty interested in like this question of, you know, can smart contracts really be implemented on a fully decentralized system? You know, can we do that, the necessary computations of state, um, without having an issue of dedicated hardware? How does quantum computing play into that, which also threatens the security of hashing algorithms? Right. I mean, that's getting into some really exotic territory, for sure, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not even sure how to begin thinking about the uh, quantum computing thing, which which is yeah. a problem, because it's not as if it's some distant, unimaginable possibility. Yeah, there sure. was just a, yesterday, they found out how to correct both kinds of errors in a single lattice over at Intel or something, I think. Right. Yeah. yeah. But stepping back from quantum computers just practically for one for one minute, um, and and back to the sort of the the main line of your question about this whole relationship between is the P two P infrastructure actually sustainable in this in this system, and how does Ethereum play into that? Because obviously. So I've got a really annoying mosquito right on your forehead right now. I've missed that. Um, um, because the because Ethereum is where we get into this weird zone where you stop having a um, you stop having a computer proletariat, don't you? I mean, it's like the 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 hashing machines are just the workhorses of this system and, and they're designed that nothing interesting can ever come out of a hashing machine. The only thing that can ever come out of a hashing machine is bitcoins. Um, and for bitcoins to become something interesting then requires a completely different type of um, computational ecology. And that's what Ethereum is about on a certain level, isn't it? I mean, the, the, these DA, DAOs which will then be doing something, they will be trading bitcoins and they will then be getting us into the same zone as for instance all these exotic financial structures that we've got in our existing economy while the the um, the actual hashing power is simply in the most fundamental sense just, a, just an infrastructure. Um, um, so, so no, nothing of any kind of exotic complexity could possibly come. As as these machines evolve, they're going in the other direction. You know, you start off that, as people say in these kind of uh, these stories from the early days of Bitcoin, you could do this stuff on your laptop. You know, if you were in at the right in two thousand nine or whatever. Um, you could have a computer that was actually an interesting machine and it could one of the things it could do would, was be producing bitcoins so your computer has not actually been turned into a, an idiot savant at that point by the bitcoin thing but now it totally has i mean the, the these latest machines that are just simply hashing machines are capable of nothing at all but these proof of work tests, you know, it's ab the, 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 
the technological phylum that they're involved in is this kind of specialization that are turning them from something that you can sort of treat as if it were a brain to something like a kind of computational liver. You know, yeah, all it does. Exactly right. mm-hmm. um, it just does this thing and it makes no sense out of that framework at all. And so the complementary side of that is Ethereum. You know, and it is this completely inverse and reciprocal evolution of thinking about computers where they will be economic agents, Turing complete, whose what they might end up doing is completely unimaginable. Right, the novelty now has a source inside the network and not just because, like, previously all of the novelty came from human transactions then announced to the blockchain. We were the source of all of the interesting right. things that the hashing uninterestingly, you know, caused to exist, made real, you know, according to your original formulation. Uh, and now inside the reality process itself, we have novelty. But at the same time, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily change this issue of, like, physical CPUs just being infrastructure because what's really generating the novelty and what's becoming autonomous are these contracts and these programs, which are really right. a distributed state a lot, a lot across a lot of computers, which maybe, right. and this is you know kind of the argument, it may be necessary that we have these single function workhorse yeah. computers in order to process a state in which those smart contracts can be autonomous. Right. Yeah. And and, and the question is obviously what are like we've got a lot of concepts now where their boundaries are being. The, the outer walls of these concepts are being pulled apart by Bitcoin, and we just don't know where these stop with money, with identity, with a whole, a whole bunch of previously kind of familiar concepts. It's no longer clear where they end or where they, they stop. Um, and obviously, a contract is exactly this kind of thing. Like once you've got a smart contract, um, what you know? How confident are we that we have any idea what a contract? is at all. I mean, the notion of it as a contract is just a genealogical description that it, it got built, it got put together, it got instantiated because it was doing the sort of thing that contracts always have been for. And from a human point of view, yeah, it serves as a contract. That's that's its kind of justification originally. But a smart contract, by definition, is an autonomous an autonomous thing. It has its own, it then has its own sort of evolutionary story to, to tell that we cannot even begin to predict. And that's exactly and so the index of what you're saying is that you say an autonomous and then you kind of trail off like an autonomous yeah. what? An autonomous. Yeah, because the horizon is then disappearing into this misty zone of absolute digital obscurity. That's totally right. Yeah. And it just it seems to me that it's that's a really really central point where this whole language of you know of um, the politics of computers qua like metal boxes that with processors inside of them that contribute a certain amount of computing power that's all off or or kind of a dead end because the computational entities whose autonomy whose political right. relevance we're talking about are not you know boxes servers yeah. or things that can yeah, be implemented yeah. across, you know, different totally. structures. Yes. Yes, totally. And and it's and it's interesting to me how much 
of the uh, there's a whole bunch of things that people expected they were going to have time to talk about and politically discuss about computers and politics that are being preempted. Like for instance, this whole question about um, you know do we what decision process would we go through to decide whether we we're going to treat them as people, to treat them as agents, to give them legal rights, to kind of, uh, you know, as if we were going to have some wonderful, you know, relaxed process of reflection and sort of ethico-political debate about, and and now we've got DAOs, you know, they're, they're already corporate persons, they're, they've already got a legal identity, all of these decisions are already over I kind of already made but, them. I realize. Yeah, the fact these things cannot exist without those decisions already having been totally preempted by the very fact of these things existing. So you then you're then cast into this weird retrospective mode of, you know, there was a missed there was a missed discussion that maybe we could now have in some weird nostalgic mode about, you know, what were we thinking? these things were going to be like or how they were going to appear or all of that. The, 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 I mean, it seems to me a huge point that this science fiction staple about this crisis sort of moment for human life on Earth, about the moment where we, in a ceremonial fashion, recognize the personhood <laughs> of an artificial intelligence, has just vaporized without anyone even really commenting on it very much. I mean, I, I might have missed that, but it seems to me that it's just like gone without, you know, there was, everyone was lined up in their fancy dress ready for this great exciting moment to happen, whether they were going to throw custard pies at this thing or, or cheer it. And instead the whole celebration has been called off and instead we're saying this thing is now you know, going to be managing certain contracts for you or engaging in, you know, it's now your legal representative in cyberspace or something of this kind. And, right, you know, like, we've just... You already decided this a hundred years ago before you even had networks to begin with. The, like, Char Strauss does this perfectly in Accelerando. You know, the velociraptor in the imaginary bar, you know, and, these, and the journalist is asking them when the singularity happens, and he said it happened in, you know, what right. was it? It's like, right, right. October yeah. 6th, 1987, when ARPANET first came online. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I, I was thinking about the concept of sovereignty, and I was wondering if um, if that if sovereignty is basically just totally out of the picture as a relevant concept, since computing power, political power being computing power, it can't break its own laws. It is what it is, univocally. Right. Yes, I don't know. It's interesting. Sovereignty is obviously an extremely important, but also very hazy concept in this, mm -hmm. isn't it? And it, it, it? I totally agree that you know to talk about power without talking about sovereignty is is odd. So I'm extremely glad that you brought it up. Um, but can you have can you have a um, 
a sovereignty without discretion, isn't it? That's partly the, the question. Um, can you have a sovereign non-discretion? Um, because that is the model of algorithmic government, actually. Um, or I should say algorithmic governance to generalize it to the maximum. Um, and I mean, I don't know about that. It's interesting. I mean, is it just our romanticism that couples those notions together? You know, when we say to be sovereign is to have discretion, is it is that a coupling that occurs just because, you know, it seems for certain intuitive reasons that 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 the sovereign should have that kind of uh, extreme metaphysical liberty, which in a way is what is being called upon, isn't it? Whereas obviously, what there's just a complete collapse of that in this case. Um, but sovereignty, in the sense of being um, the supreme authority over the fundamental structure of reality, at least in this domain, is is not only preserved but reinforced. So you know that decoupling is quite dramatic. I don't know. It seems as if I mean, and definitely, you know, you're right that those two have been coupled in critiques of sovereignty and in theory of it. But it seems like if you asked anyone with political with power, you know, does that give you absolute authority over the reality conditions of that power, the ability to modify it? And even if you right. went back to like French monarchs and you said, right, right. could you just modify this system of power arbitrarily? Is that what you can do as king? And you got a candid answer from them. It'd be Hell no. You know, really, like, having power is being the one who gets hanged if he makes the wrong modification to reality. It's ultimate, you know, vulnerability to the vulnerability of that system. Yeah. Yeah, so. I think so. I mean, it obviously is a romantic trope going back as far as you want, isn't it? The notion of the absolute sovereign. I mean, the, the insane Roman emperors, I think, play this role really nicely, where it's just that they are treated as being able to explore the absolute absolute horizon of unlimited discretion um, and you know which is in sort of conventional terms just abuse of power uh, uh, power without any limitations on its abuse whatsoever and it's a kind of fantasy that is kind of intrinsic to that and maybe is intrinsic to a certain kind of humanism a certain sort of construction of human dignity requires that we we have this figure of the pure despot who is capable of infinite abuse um, but I would agree with you that in fact it's deeply problematic and of course you know I mean again without wanting to just bang bang on about Marx too much Marx basically evacuates it almost as radically as, as in principle, as Bitcoin does in, in, in fact, in the sense that his notion of what, the, what bourgeois sovereignty is, is has almost no more discretion to it than um, the Bitcoin protocol. I mean, you know, the, the bourgeoisie rule in order to maintain uh, the market economy according to a set of principles that are so 
preset and are so outside their discretion that they can be described by um, political and economic philosophy clearly and 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 you know so it's not for instance within that whole within the whole of the Marxist tradition there's there's almost no romance of sovereignty at all yeah and there's this seems to be an area and I, I mean I think that and maybe this is a biased impression, but it seems as if in a lot of areas we um, we've kind of shown leftist analysis to be inadequate to this situation and to be relatively inadequate versus like civil libertarian, the cypherpunk kind of area. And maybe that's just an artifact of you know the cypherpunks having been the first you know originated it first to talk about it. But this seems like an area where the leftist analysis has a has a, a leg up. Because on the other side, on the right side, you get these, um, yeah, I don't, in the United States especially, uh, like individual sovereign, like people who claim to be sovereign citizens, and so they go through this whole rigmarole of like, you know, you can buy these passports online that are like, you know, your sovereign citizen passport. And actually, my cousin gave up his U.S. citizenship in favor of one of these things. That's like literally the stupidest thing any person related to me has ever done. Um, because now we can't come back to the U.S. But anyway, that aside, uh, this, but that's just a complete, that shows it, it's a complete fantasy. You know, declaring yourself a sovereign citizen in no way less means the DEA is not going to knock in your front door or that you're going to be able to decide what borders you can and can't cross or anything like that. Right. You know, it's not just, it's not a declaration, it's not, you know, metaphysics does not extend to actual discretion in the concrete world. And right. so that is a, you know, the comment I made when Ian first brought up sovereignty, like in the text, was that, you know, in a real way, if we take sovereignty in this sort of more Marxist sense of being, um, you know, the ability or the being in the position of deploying the protocol, basically, you know, the, um, uh, the bourgeois having custody of the conditions of possibility of the market economy or whatever, then sovereignty is control of territory. Um, which can be in a military sense as well as a bourgeois sense, you know, territory um, in a Deleuzean sense that covers the physical and the economic. And then we've got key access, the individual, because then the person behind the keys can be turned into anything if key if the sovereignty of key access right. is violated. So it's not yeah. really discretion so much as the prevention of this sort of infinite surplus invading the vacuum behind, you know, the identity yeah. representation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the the relation of the uh, owner of the key to the key is the relation that taps directly into the 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 uh, way that this relation is <coughs> discussed within the transcendental philosophy tradition. Isn't it? Like Sch Schopenhauer's whole thing is that as a phenomenon, as a phenomenal being, you're completely constrained and determined by the structures of the phenomenal world and your the, the will which is obviously not private or personal or whatever is absolutely sovereign in the sense of it creates the universe only only as thing in itself only as something that is radically outside the entire structure of the physical universe, you know, outside space, outside time, outside individuation, you know, so 
so this, which obviously we've talked about before, this way in which um, the, the cryptographic relation of your real life ID versus your avatar re rehearses and replays this relationship between the transcendental and empirical ego is also a place where this question of sovereignty is played out. Um, and so, I mean, you are sovereign in theory, to get back to Jake's earlier point, to give your private key to another person. I mean, I'm trying to think of, of a single act that would be very comparable to, to Caligula's most extreme moment than handing over your private key to some random person that you find on the blockchain. But that's, that's my candidate for it. And, and so in, in principle, there is still that sovereignty held, sovereignty in relation to the blockchain by something outside the blockchain. But it doesn't obviously extend to messing with the protocol. It's only a, to do with whether or not one it, the, the fact that one enters or does not enter the system is the is the axis of sovereignty. And does that make the the language of negative and positive and zero sum games? In a sense, does that make Sovereignty a zero sum question in the sense that you can't you can't acquire more sovereignty you know you, you can only lose it and you can only maintain it there's only this game of incentives for me to attack your sovereignty to steal your identity or for me to hold on to my own and not to engage in this one you know what would be a positively sovereign act which is to give away my sovereignty by transferring right. either accidentally or deliberately my private key yeah. Um, yeah. Like in the same way that you know the uh, the military's ability in theory to destroy the protocol to mount a 51% attack, it, you know, if they wanted to preserve their sovereignty over the economy in the sense of being able to collect taxes for funding, so that access you know the entire market is our territory and not terra incognita, um, would seem to support the idea that sovereignty in both, you know. Inside and outside the system, or in a way that crosses the bounds of this one system, is a zero-sum question. Is that maybe the case? Or yes, I think so. I think so. I think so because it's hard to. Um, it would be hard to say if we're talking about sovereignty, we're not talking about power. And then this question of, well, do we want to talk in a way? Do we want to talk about power in a way that? Just on this level, breaks say with with um, Bishler and Nitzan on this basic definition that you're talking about power if you're talking about zero sum relations. I mean, um, so I see no reason at all to deny them that, or you know, to deny that language that. Um, so I mean, there's a whole other sort of strain that I'm sort of used to at the moment, which attached to the, um, to, to put it in a soundbite, sovereignty is conserved 
that there's a conservation law of sovereignty, which I think is very attached. It's not quite the same as talking about it as a zero-sum sum game, but uh, it's related. I'd sort of lock it into a conservation law. So it's not economically variable in a naive sense. You can't, you can't grow or shrink sovereignty. You, it's, only, it's radically a question about distribution. But that doesn't that doesn't seem to accord with the idea of like key acts of key control as as sovereignty, or of, of you know of the porosity of territory as a as an indirect or inverse measure in relation to sovereignty. Because if you just give away, you just publicize your keys, right? That identity, your sovereignty over that identity, has been destroyed, and it's not well, no one has gained sovereignty over that, but yours. Oh yeah, isn't it? Isn't it kind of boolean your key access thing? I mean, you you don't you don't you can't ever have partial. You can't actually ever be a partial holder of keys, except by some. I mean, there are complicated arrangements that can can sh share these cryptographic identities, but, but right. I, th I think for the purpose of this argument, we can just say you either control your key or, or you don't, your private key. I mean, it's like, you know, your relation in that way is one of indivisible sovereignty. You can, you can sacrifice it, like you say. You can give it away. You can, you can dispense with your private key. But you can't, you can't increase by some sort of economic value your level of you know, you either are the holder of a key or you're not. Isn't that right? It's like, you know, if we're on the chess on the chess game example again, there's the economic dimension. You can lose certain pieces, you can lose certain bits of territory, things can go badly or not badly. But if it's like you are the black player in chess and you're in a computer game and you have access that means that you are making the moves for the black side. And, and that was hacked so that, you know, white makes a move, you try to make a move, and you can't. You're blocked from it. Someone else coming in from the side takes over your pieces, whether you're winning or losing, and starts playing the black side in your place. The difference between those two... Um, dimensions is this difference it seems to me between this sort of economic and this dimension of sovereignty you're sovereign over the black pieces even if you're being wiped out until the point that you lose that game of chess unless you lose you lose control over over those pieces and some other some other player comes in and actually you know removes your key control from being the person who is actually able to make those moves. So it's those two very different things between, you know, winning or losing the game and actually having the keys so that you are in unquestioned boolean control of one of that of that side. Yeah, yeah and it would yeah, that makes sense definitely. And it seems as if that's sort of guaranteed or that the the applicability, unique applicability of that logic is guaranteed by the assumption that you are always that you always know and can know immediately on face whether you were the initiator of a certain move. So like whether you are actually in control of the game. Um, 
and now I want to. I'm tempted to suddenly jump and compare that to like verifiability to the other side of the asymmetry, where it's easy to confirm that you know it was actually your private key that was used to sign a message. But I actually think that's that's almost too facile. I don't know what I'm. I guess the point of view that I was initially looking at it in was one that's sort of more quantum where it's not, where you don't know, at least maybe not until the end of the game or, or whatever, um, whether any particular move, you can't be certain um, that it was initiated by you. You're not sure, like, so in your own life, you know, you're not sure who was who was the agent of certain outcomes happening to you. You know, like, do I have sovereignty over the conditions of my own everyday existence? Right. Then yeah. you've got this question of, you know, is the government controlling it or corporations controlling it? This is one of these sort of classic, like, everyday politics kind of, kind of yeah. questions. The state in which I live a sovereign, a sovereign one. Um, and it would seem that relative to what we, we were, you, know, you were talking about just then, where you've got a chess game and you have a determinate fact of the matter as to whether you controlled moves, that is a, a quantum logic versus a Boolean one, or a pair of consistent logic versus one in which contradiction always leads to explosion. If you know, you're familiar with, you know, um, yeah. proofs that zero equals one and therefore anything, you know, whatever right. position X. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's difficult. I think that this gets us into the heart of all of these complicated questions about empirical identity because you, you, coming out of the whole cryptographic world, you might want to just restructure this whole sense of identity. So rather than the way you were seeing this question about am I author of my own life or what other forces might be involved or all of these things, it's more that given certain um, given certain games or given certain responsibilities to undertake certain moves, an agent is presupposed at certain points in the system. There has to be someone who signs a certain piece of paper at a certain time or provides a certain signature at a certain time or it takes responsibility for a certain gesture. There are these kind of uh, points where an agent is asked, well, what are you going to do? And that rather than there being some natural self that just simply is going through these points, it's rather that there is a there is a, an avatar that must be constituted in order to satisfy these particular these particular um, I'll say responsibilities. But I mean, responsibilities only in the sense that you know, like, say you are you've got a computer chess thing, and there's two different people playing who can play this game of chess somewhere on the internet. So there's going to be a black player and a white player. Um, that is coming out of the game itself. It's not, you can say, oh, you know, I play this game and therefore I am the black player or I am the white player. But on the other, coming at it the other way around, the game itself, the way it's constituted, presupposes a player must mm -hmm. be must be presupposed in order for this game to to go forward. And so that at the point that you start playing that game, then you have a certain structure of subjectivity that, you know, from your point of view comes from your life and comes from a whole 
biographical and biological set of presuppositions. But coming from the system, that position is something that the game is allotting. You know, right. it's, the, it's the game itself that actually sets up structures and allots a particular position of subjectivity. You have been supplied as the player that the game calls for. Yes, exactly, and that, and you know, there will that that what the game calls for is completely uh, determinate in the structure of the game. And so, how much, you know, if we went through the narrative that you just gave, how much of that narrative about I'm doing this, I'm doing that, who's or you know who's responsible for this or that is moving through a series of these games that are actually pre-structured and have a subject position that must be occupied. Exactly, okay. Which is another, it kind of circles us back to Foucault a little bit, as this the subject constituted, Deleuze and Foucault, as this sort of constant um, indirected movement through a series of subject-forming games. Right. Um, or as being, yeah, like an, an off-vector through all of these games. And that's sort of like, that was where I was about to get to the smart contracts, is that with, you know, a, an unbreakable cryptographic divide between whatever theory, you know, called for agent, whatever is supplying the decisions, um, in the context of, of smart contracts, where novelty and decision-making that doesn't originate outside, but you can't tell whether it originates outside or inside, or, you know, how far back in the past the originating signal goes or, or whatever, it seems like you actually have like a fundamental inchoateness on the other side of the cryptographic divide where right. once you take into account that insecurity is fundamental, like all keys are not going to be securely possessed by particular agents, so you've got both internal novelty that you can't clearly distinguish from external novelty and a fundamental you know, situation of insecurity there's a certain point at which you must be able to have actions, game actions, you know, originating in this game space, which is yeah. the global state that, I, you know, I can't, all, you almost can't tell ontologically or epistemologically, just don't have a clear originating agent. You've got a, you know, a margin of indeterminacy, which is like that of reality, uh, you know, experienced yeah. by humans. Yeah. But I think the, the, as, because the the agent is becoming more and more specifically crystallized as an avatar, then this zone of indeterminacy becomes it's like you know w within the system of avatars or the system of masks, the mask is is specified with greater and greater exactness, and so what can then come and put on that mask? Um, that that's where you're going to sort of have the indeterminacy, um, and it's. I mean, again, in a sort of Foucaultian way, it's a kind of disciplinary question. You know, it's a that that there's a responsibility again of if you're going to put on a mask for engaging in in the in the actions required of a certain avatar. Are you? Um, are you properly cultivated or trained, you know, to be able to competently operate that avatar? And all the time, these DAOs are going to be 
uh, implicit in them in a, in a way is that they're going to be a bit supercilious about their capacity to do this stuff relative to you, I think. I mean, um, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of uh, recent stuff about, I'm, this might be my translation of the language because I think it's just fantastic about secretaries. You know, I think, you know, just as a, as a computer, and I apologize if I've, if I've, uh, if I've already said this, this is, um, this is premature Alzheimer's, which I apologize for. But just as the word computer, you know, used to be a person and then became a, um, a machine, I think secretary is absolutely mm. going to do this. I mean, it's like the, it's a function that these uh, applications are utterly teleologically carried towards that will just do this stuff online consistently, efficiently, competently in a way that I don't think, I'm talking for myself, but I honestly think this is widely shared, just uh, losing the capability to do that. You know, you've got a hundred different passwords, you, you totally lose track of, of how to get into a whole bunch of different accounts and uh, how one account is relating to another account and what account needs your attention at a particular time and this vast amount of avatar management that's just becoming overwhelming is something that is just designed for a as I say secretary I'm I would be stunned if in a few decades um, when people say secretary they automatically mean a kind of uh, cyberspace application and the notion that there were once human secretaries just is a kind of funny historical kind of uh, anecdote and so yeah, this might seem a little bit of a digression but it seems to me this clicks on a lot to the stuff that you're talking about you know once this thing is just you you click in this secretary to do to 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 ensure competence in avatar management then the whole question about your relationship to the avatar is transformed right because if you combine it I mean if you think the full sense of secretary is all is time management you know time control dividing it up like who you're going to meet with when and so forth and what's important for you to do once you integrate time management into that then it's sort of like you know it becomes a you use the term secretary diamond the diamond yeah. in Greek that's the division of fates it's that which uh, shapes you towards your destiny you know destines man so it's something that um, you know a synthetic software agent that's shaping your time and your identity as well back across the divide and and I'm sure will be totally embraced I mean you know if I could get one of these things to run vast chunks of my life now, I would be just reaching for my credit card at this very moment. I mean, it's I like... So, Sorry. Yeah, no, that was a complete, that was a complete, uh, probably a whinge, actually, if I was going to define it as a semi So how are we doing, guys? Yes, I mean, uh, I actually just came to say, actually, we're now. Uh, sorry about this beautiful, like uh, Diane Warwick pouring into. If you can hear it, it's like coming from the outside. 
it's a beautiful sunny day here in New York, and somebody's playing like music. But anyways, maybe this is a good time to to end because uh, I think because of the time constraint, a lot of people have already left, right? And they also buy privately or here on the sidebar, and it's we're over time. So I don't okay. know what do you guys feel. Can we end it and I'll copy the conversation from the sidebar into the classroom and then we can continue on there and yeah, see you guys all next week for the final session of this okay. seminar. Yes. So great. Thanks to everybody as usual. Thanks to everybody. Thanks, Nick. Thanks everybody. Right. I'll do yeah, the have same a good week. All the all the conversations. So talk to you soon. Okay, great. great. Have a good bye -bye, week. Nick. Bye.